Let me invite you to take your Bibles again and join us in the book of Philippians, today chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open and perhaps your fingers moist. Told we're not supposed to lick our fingers anymore. It's going to be hard for me to be a preacher if I can't lick my fingers, turn pages. But nonetheless, we'll make do. First, today we shall read from Philippians chapter 3, and then we shall consider many other passages I trust that will be of help to us. I remember as a child, for the first time in my memory, I don't know if it's the first time, but first time in my memory I ever played Monopoly and thought I was rich. Turned out I wasn't. Turns out just because something looks like money, it's not money. It turns out that money is not something that I recognize for me, but it is something that the person to whom I'm giving the money to recognizes as money. So there's the art of the deal is it takes two people to make a deal. So if I'm trading something that's valuable to me, that's fine. But it has to be valuable to you if I'm going to make a deal with you about anything. Well, there are a lot of people who go into heaven, so-called. A lot of people who say they're going to heaven or think they're going to heaven or believe they're going to heaven or deceive they're going to heaven because they think that somehow they have met some requirement the problem with that is the one with whom they're making this heaven deal doesn't agree with their currency. Be careful trying to get to heaven on monopoly money. That brings us to Philippians chapter 3. Because the warning in this chapter is that there is only one way, and that is to use Christ. There's only one road one way that leads to God, and that is the way of Christ. Increasingly, we live in a world that wants to tell us that there are many ways to God. After all, a God by any other name is still God, right? Not true. Or, because there are many gods just bearing different names, so-called, there must be many ways. Just because a religious system uh, postulates this notion that our way is around the left side as opposed to the right side, or the right side as opposed to the left side, doesn't make them inherently wrong. Now, I want you to understand the, 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 if you will, the bedrock for all such notions is that all religions are man-made. So because your religion is man-made, then who's to say? It's just a bunch of fellows getting together and deciding this is the way it's going to be. This is our system. Now, that's, a, that's an inherent problem for those of us who actually believe the Bible and believe the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in power to declare that he was the Son of God. Listen, there have been many so-called Christs. There have been many so-called Messiahs. There have been many so-called Saviors. But none of them, not a single one of them, have ever demonstrated that they were. Turns out they all died. 
If they're God, how did they die? In the case of the Lord Jesus, though his body died, he lives, and the third day he resurrects his body. I'd call that one up on any other so-called Messiah. So make sure you understand that the bedrock principle about the rebuke of religion or the equality of religion is that all religions are just man-made. So whether your group got together in the east or got together in the west or got together in the north or got together in the south, it's still a bunch of fellows putting it together. Except that's not true. That brings us to Philippians chapter 3. The apostle is going to challenge the Philippian church, a church that he loves dearly, to recognize that there is but one way. He does this again and again and again and again throughout his letters. We shall see in a moment in Ephesians, also in the book of Galatians. We shall, I trust, find our way to Romans. Uh, I assure you, he does this again and again and again. It seems every letter that Paul wrote, he talked about this subject. It must be pretty important. It is so important that you will go to hell if you don't get it. So let's read, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in monopoly money. Otherwise, in this context, known as the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He now lists eight reasons why he should go to heaven if anybody should on his own achievements. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anybody's got a resume, the apostle said, I've got one. But, verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to do whatever he wants or to subject all things to himself. This is a treasured chapter. I suspect that most, if not all of us, have at some point quoted phrases from this chapter. The apostle makes clear that his righteousness before God is not based upon him or any achievement or any deed that he's ever done, but rather his status with God or his promise of eternal life is based solely upon the work of Christ. I, uh, I've always found it interesting. My ears are attuned, if you will. My spiritual antenna is always up when people talk about their confidence in heaven. Let me uh, offer a pastoral parenthesis for just a moment. There are people who actually believe that you cannot have the assurance of salvation. They, cannot, they, they believe that you cannot know that you know that you know that when you die, you go to heaven. People actually believe that. I will tell you that that flies in the face of many, 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 many scriptures that we could mention, but it certainly flies in the face of Philippians chapter 3. Do you think the Apostle Paul doubts that he's going to heaven? Not for one minute he doubts. He's not doubting a thing about that. He is basing his entire future on the confidence that he has that what he has experienced in Christ is exactly the key that unlocks the doors to heaven. But I'm always interested when people will talk about their confidence or lack thereof, but primarily their confidence. And invariably, their confidence comes down to one of two categories. It's really only two ways the human mind thinks. You either think that you're going this way by way of the work of someone else, or you think you're going by your own work. Now, the human flesh, proud and arrogant, self-righteous as it is, likes to believe that somehow we're okay. God and I are okay. Well, that's not a bad terminology, but it's often applied poorly. Because the reality, friend, is it doesn't really matter what you think about you and God. It really matters what God thinks about you and God. So it's really not a democracy 
as pertains to God. So what does God think about your righteousness, your achievements, your deeds, your good, your good works, whatever they may be? What does God think about your philanthropy? What does God think about your generosity? What does God think about your kindness or your deference to people who are hurt, people who are alleviating injustice in the world? What does God think about your uh, paying attention to those who are suffering and, 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 and disassociated from all the benefits of life? Well, God is not anti those things. Certainly, God wants us to pursue righteousness, and these things on their face are righteous. But these things do not merit eternal life because the problem is not what you've done. The problem is what you've done, right? The problem is, the problem is you're a sinner, and you have, you have complained against God, you've, you've been bitter toward God, you've been vindictive toward people, you've been hateful toward people, you've been selfish and self-righteous, and you've given yourself to licentiousness and law-breaking against God, and you have had evil thoughts, and you've said evil words, and you've done evil deeds, and, and all of those things are true of every last one of us. That's why in the church we, we are not permitted to, to judge people as somehow unworthy of the gospel. We freely give the gospel. We bestow that which has been bestowed upon us freely to others. We give this good news that God stands ready to forgive you even as he's forgiven me. And there's not a thing in your life that tarnishes your life more than what I've done in my life that tarnished mine. I'm not a worse person or a better person. We're all sinners we're all in the same sorry bunch praise god and god loves us you know i think you 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 think if you've got a lot of children you think they're all special the rest of us not so sure what what makes your child special because you love that child you love that child why does God treat us the way he treats us? Because he loves us. This is such good news. Good news for a sinner whose life is broken, whose life is bruised by his failures, and who's, who, who could walk around in shame, but not necessary, because God has forgiven me. Again, hear the story of the prodigal in Luke 15. The prodigal comes home, and the father says, your, your brother He was lost, and now he's found. We're going to have a party. Can you imagine? God loves repentance so much that he throws a party for repentance. The angels rejoice in heaven for repentance. We acknowledge our sin. We claim the forgiveness of God, and we receive it unto ourselves. And we eat, and we drink, and we are married together with the one who loves us. We celebrate that he loves us so. This is the gospel that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is the work of Christ. So this is the point that he makes in this first long paragraph, beginning in verse 2, Philippians chapter 3, that the righteousness of Christ is the only way to heaven. False confidence is not confidence. Fake confidence is not confidence. Man's confidence is not confidence. Something you gin up 
is not real and true confidence. Instead, he tells us plainly in verse 9, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Theologians call this an alien righteousness. That sounds kind of sci-fi for you, but it means it's, it's, it's not inherent within you. It's outside of you. And we all have used this illustration many times. Occasionally, you may get to go somewhere, do something, or hang out with people, or meet somebody, or whatever, and they introduced you on their credentials. So, hey, I got a pass. Come go with me. Hey, I know a guy. You want to meet so-and-so? I know him. I'll introduce you. We've all had those kinds of experiences. And if you've had absolutely no experience like that in life, well, one's coming. Someday, someday, you're going to get to meet God the Father. And you won't be there because of you. You'll be there because his son brought you there. Don't ever forget that. Your righteousness is not from man. He has uh, harsh things to say in verse 2 about those that want to build, if you will, their righteousness on the work of men. Look out for the dogs, he calls them. Dog was a pejorative term that the Jews used to refer to the Gentiles. It's interesting here. This is a Jewish man, Paul, writing to a Gentile church, the Philippians, and he says, look out for the dogs. Normally, it's Jews referring to Gentiles as dogs. Now, it's a Jew telling Gentiles to refer to Jews as dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. So he, he devalues the, the preeminent, the ultimate Jewish ritual, which is circumcision. And he says, we are the circumcision because, verse 3, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. Christ is our champion. Christ is our hero. Christ is, a, is the one who's going to take us there. And we put, he says it here in verse 3, no confidence in the flesh. How much is no confidence? It's none. So false confidence does not equal confidence. He says this variously. I'll read these quickly. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, because we're sinners, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Do you hear that? You think God's been good to you? I hope so. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because he says God has saved you, he's shown you his grace so that he might show you the immeasurable riches of his future grace. God's got more in store for you than you've ever known, than you've ever imagined, certainly seen or heard. Thanks be to God. This is the glory of God. Consider Galatians chapter 2. The apostle has something similar to say. Verse 15. 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, don't miss those conjunctions, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, not you, not your mother, not your father, not your brother, not your sister, not your wife, not your husband, not your children, not your grandchildren, and no other person you could name will ever be justified. No one. There's an old cliche, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all the same. We're all unworthy, we're all undeserving. And only in Christ do we have any hope of eternal life. So that begs the question now, what have you put your confidence in? Perhaps most of us in this room have put our trust in Christ. I would ask those watching via the broadcast, what about you? Have you put your trust in Christ alone? If we have not, then we fall into the category of not going to heaven, not being forgiven, not being restored to God, not having peace with God. Said another way, God and you are not okay. So the only way to heaven is through Christ and through his righteousness. It is an alien righteousness indeed. It is alien to you. It is not alien to Jesus, it's his. And Ephesians and Galatians tell us that God freely gives it. Freely gives it. He is ready to forgive you. He's ready to restore you. He's ready to, to clean up your life. He's ready to change your life. He's ready to demonstrate his power to do it with even you. There's not one problem you have that's bigger than any problem he's already dealt with. Listen, your, your sin is yours and is uniquely yours. Your sin is grievous. Your sin is sorrowful. Your sin is painful. I get that, 100%, I get that. But here's the good news. While it's new to you, it's not new to God. You know that there have been people just like us before us? It turns out that 20 years ago, there were bad people. And 40 years ago, there were bad people. And 140 years ago, there were bad people. And all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Eve, there were bad people. There were people who did wrong against God. They violated the law of God. They violated and transgressed the law of God. And they stand worthy of condemnation. Yet, God loved them. And he worked to make a way for them to have his righteousness instead of theirs. I decided I'd wear a suit today. I don't always wear a suit, those of you who are regulars. I, I have a couple of ladies here who keep close eye on my wardrobe. And, and they're not my wife, by the way. She keeps a close eye, but that's a given, right? She's my wife. But there are a couple of ladies in the church who keep an eye on, and they, they comment periodically about the way my shoes match or don't match so forth. But I decided to wear a suit today because I was talking about a righteousness that you put on 
If you read Colossians, we don't have time to, but if you read Colossians, he uses that, that metaphor a lot. Put off and put on. Put off and put on. So this is not, these are not the clothes I wore yesterday. It was Saturday. I didn't wear a suit yesterday. But I decided to wear one today because I, I wanted to hide. I wanted to show you what it looks like when you hide what you can't see. And to some degree, we're all hiding, aren't we? We don't want people to know what we think. We don't want people to know what we almost said or even did say. We don't want people to know what we've done. But our God knows all that. And, and no amount of clothing is going to hide that. You can hide that. You can dress up. You can polish up. You, you can look all that you want. But in reality, underneath your clothes, underneath your suit, you're still a sinner. And only a father, only a father is going to love unconditionally regardless what you're wearing, regardless of what you're hiding. The good news is God loves us and he is ready to clean us up and forgive us. He's ready to dress us up, not in a suit of our making, but in a suit of righteousness given to us by Jesus Christ. This suit was not given to me without the transfer of some real money instead of monopoly money. But the suit that I'm going to be wearing in heaven, that'll be the suit that was given to me. No credit to me whatsoever. Thanks be to God. There's a second thing I want you to see and we'll conclude. But not only is the apostle making emphasis that the righteousness of Christ is the only way to heaven. He tells us that the righteousness of Christ must not make us complacent. Now this is the fear that so many people have that somehow if, if it's so good, so easy to believe, to trust, to look to Jesus. By the way, it's not easy. Don't let anybody tell you it is. But if, it, if, if the notion is that if, it, if this comes to us just as a gift and, and I can't earn it, don't earn it, can't do anything to somehow put myself in a position to earn it. If that's the case, then it just seems too easy. People have told me that over the years. It just seems to be, it's just illogical that God would give such a status to people who are so overtly evil, overtly wrong, overtly stubborn, overtly returning constantly to the same waller that he just rescued them from. Those of us who have struggled with besetting sins in our life, we understand this. And we have, we have sought the Lord's help again and 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 again. And we wonder, how could God love us when I have been here before? This is the same song, just the next verse and I've lost count of how many verses. Those of us who have struggled find it difficult to believe that somehow God would indeed forgive us again. And yet he does. He does. So the temptation is to, on the one hand, not believe that God is so merciful. 
There is another temptation, if you will, the ditch on the other side of the road is because God is so merciful, I'm on easy street and I can, you know, just play it fast and loose. Don't have to worry about it because after all, it's all a gift anyway. God has given me this gift and I've got it made and it's all wonderful. So I want you to notice how the apostle rebukes the notion that somehow you are to to complacently address God or deal with your walk after Christ. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. This is a, the antecedent for this is the resurrection of the dead in verse 11, which is another way of saying heaven, the resurrection of the dead. Go to heaven. How do, how do you go to heaven? He says, it, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Now, there's a, there's a common mistake here. The notion is that because the apostle says you have to work after you're saved, the suggestion is that somehow you can not have assurance. You have to keep working. You have to keep working. Well, Remember how we got here. We didn't get here on the basis of your works, right? We got here on the basis of the Lord's gift, the Lord's grace, the Lord's mercy, the Lord's forgiveness. It's the Lord's plan. Philippians 2, have this mind in yourselves, which also exists in Christ, who, although he was God, thought it not robbery to count himself equal with God or a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a man, even a bondservant, and he humbled himself even to the point of death. Now, why did Jesus do that? Did he do that because somehow you deserved it? No. Did he do that because somehow you voted for that? No. Did he do that because you asked him for that? No. Did he do that because of something resident within you or me? No. He did that because God ordained it. In other words, this is God's design, God's plan. This whole salvation thing, heaven thing after death is God's idea. In other words, friends, you don't get to make the rules. It's not your thing. It's God's thing. You don't get to decide. So you read these passages. He says, I've got to work hard. I've got to work hard to stay a Christian. The language of the Bible doesn't permit that kind of theology. It's possible. It's possible in the Greek language of the New Testament to say, once it's done, it's done, and use verb tenses to say it. I'll give you an illustration. Susan and I got married years ago. So I married a girl. It was done. Now, what happens after that is that, that chapter's still being written, right? I'm still alive, so I'm still being written. But it doesn't change the fact that I married. And not, not one thing in my life could ever change that which is an historical fact. I entered into marriage. Well, that's the way the verbs read in this chapter And in every other chapter where the gospel is highlighted, the verbs read, when you come to Christ, it is done. 
it is done. You come to Christ. And you're a Christian. Now what he's talking about here in this chapter is the threat of complacency. Having received the Lord's grace, do you just go squander it? Do you, having received the Lord's grace, do you just go live riotously like the prodigal? Do you, having received the Lord's grace, do you just go do what you want without regard to that? Or do you, you just put it in neutral and coast? You see, there's a real threat in your flesh and in my flesh to become apathetic, to become complacent. I don't know what God's doing with the pandemic, but I'm telling you, right now, number one on my list is he's sick and tired of mediocrity among his people. I think the pandemic is an enormous gift to the church. That we will evaluate what it means to be a follower of God. And we will take our lives and our opportunity more seriously than ever before. And if you have taken the pandemic as an opportunity for you to become more inward, to be more introspective, and to hunker down and take care of yourself and retreat from God, then I want you to understand Never, ever in the Bible has God advocated a strategy called hunker down. Rather, God has always commissioned his people to get up and go and do and serve and help strengthen those who are weak. That the Lord gives us grace so that we might Help those who are weak. So, look again. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on. I press on. The word here translated press on is the exact verb that he used back here in uh, verse Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. The word in verse 6, persecutor, and here in verse 12, press on, are exactly the same verb. But the context in verse 6 indicates he was a, a persecutor. The, the verb literally means to pursue. So in this case, he's a pursuer of the church. That's what he was doing. The apostle was converted while he was on the way to Damascus to pursue the church, persecute the church, to bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. He, so there the word pursue is translated persecutor. Here the word is translated press on, but I pursue, press on, to make it my own. I will not sit on my hands. I will not lean back in the easy chair. I will get up and I will go and serve Christ. I will make much of Christ. I will lean into Christ I will follow Christ. I will go where Christ goes. I will go there so that others might follow me. And together we can go that we might serve Christ and acknowledge Christ. Now there are those who would suggest that somehow this is all too easy, to which I would simply call your attention to Romans 6. Don't have time to do anything more than just simply read this, but hear these words. If you think it's too easy to follow Jesus, here's his argument in, verse, in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, you've received grace. 
Now you're, you have your, if you will, your assurance of heaven. Should you just continue in sin so God has to keep giving more grace? Because grace from God makes God look good. The more grace that God has to give, it's just wonderful. It's wonderful that God would be so forgiving. Wonderful that God would be so kind. Yes, that's wonderful. So much grace. Let's just keep sinning so God gives more grace. And man, that looks, makes God look good. Well, that's ridiculous. Notice how he says it. Verse 2, by no means. That's a double negative in Greek. No, no, no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The old me is dead. You know the sinful me? It's dead. Thanks be to God. So since you're dead to sin, reckon it dead to sin. Put it off and put on the way of Christ. Walk in the newness of life. The newness of life with a new champion, with a new hero, with a new purpose, with a new goal, with a new objective. To which the apostle says in Philippians 3, because of Christ, because I know who he is and what he's done for me, I pursue him. I press on. I want to urge you today, if you found yourself complacent, that is not the will of God for your life. You found yourself cold and dry, distant from God. That is not the will of God for your life. That is not the witness of Scripture. That is not what the the righteous men and women of old are guilty of. People are not celebrating the Bible because they're mediocre. They're celebrating the Bible in spite of the fact that they're sinners because in the midst of their trials, they cried out to God. I urge you, brothers, Sisters, cry out to God and pursue Christ. The righteousness of Christ must not make us complacent. We read these words and we're greatly helped. So I ask you today to consider your relationship to God. Are you in Christ? Have you received the free gift of his righteousness? And secondly, are you pursuing him, pressing on toward the high calling, the upward call of God in Christ, verse 14. Let those of us, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. You style yourself a follower of Christ, you style yourself a faithful, obedient servant of Christ, then let us think this way. It's all of grace, and having received grace, I'm no longer the same. Let me give you an illustration that will conclude I think of uh, a job I took years ago when I was in college. I never had a real job. I mean, I had summer jobs. I had those kind of things. But I got my first real job in college. And I worked for a, a company that had union credentials. And I wasn't in the union. But I joined the union. I did. Being from South Texas, that was a weird experience for me. But they had, they had a union, and I needed to join the union, so I did. And then I got paperwork from the union. Now that you're in the union, you're going to do A and B and C and D and E and F and G and H and so forth. And guess what? As a young college student working for this job, that's exactly what I did. And you know why I did that? 
Well, you could say, well, you did that because, you know, they're the, the union did all this work for you, and they, you know, they gave you these advantages and so forth, and the union negotiated that good rate. By the way, but I was making twice what the minimum wage was. Susan's brother was my roommate, and he was making minimum wage. And I had a couple other roommates, buddies from high school. They were making minimum wage, and they were not happy that I got that job. But I was thrilled. So whatever they wanted me to do, I was ready to do it because I was making good money, and that money validated every expectation they had of me. I look at Jesus. And Jesus said, you know what? I've, I've given you eternal life. I've given you forgiveness. I've given you a right relationship with God. What do you think about that? How does that sit on you? How does that feel? Now, as a result of being adopted into this family and being guaranteed eternal life and receive the forgiveness of your eternal sins, I'd like for you to serve me the rest of your life. I'd like for you to deny yourself and I'd like to press on to the upward call of Christ. Come follow me. Are you going to gripe about that? Are you going to stiff arm Christ? Say, no, what you're asking is, is too much of me. What you're asking is too high. No, what you're asking, in spite of your extreme generosity, I just, I just won't do. No, friend, you're not going to do that. You're going to do quite the reverse. You're going to say, wherever he leads, I'll go. Whatever it takes, I'll follow. Because Christ has saved me. Because Christ has made me whole. Because Christ has restored me. Because Christ has given me the promise of everlasting life. Christ has secured my resurrection from the dead. Press on, brothers. Press on. And don't sit paralyzed in complacency. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be merciful to us as we contemplate your grace this morning. We thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for, for your forgiveness. Thank you for your reconciliation. And we pray, Father, that as those who understand the measure of that reconciliation, we would press on, that we would pursue Christ so that we might share in his sufferings, that we might follow him in every way. God, give us much grace. We are your children looking to you this morning. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.